Today we are un poco loco on Writers Get Animated as we discuss Coco. Stay tuned. Buenos dias and bienvenidos a Writers Get Animated. Soy Mackenzie World. Y soy Cristobal Leva. Cristobal? Yeah, my uncle Fred used to call me Crystal Balls. Because it's, wow. it's Cristobal in Espanol. But I prefer... I've learned so much. I prefer Chris. <laughs> Chris. I'm Chris. Okay. Well, he's Chris. <laughs> And I'm Mackenzie. Um, and welcome to Writers Get Animated, a podcast about storytelling and animation in finally our annual Pixar episode. <laughs> I was going to say meeting, um, being able to see dead people. Oh, that's that's our <laughs> <laughs> that's our other podcast. Writers Get Mediumed. Ah, <laughs> oh, so. I'm very excited to be talking about Coco. I, I, I don't know how you feel, Mackenzie, but I, I'm very excited. I thought this movie was great. I mean, I had dramaturgical issues, but what is right is good animated without dramaturgical issues. I feel like that's the colon to it. Like writers get animated as often as they have dramaturgical issues. <laughs> <gasps> that's our movie. Writers get animated to colon dramaturgical boogaloo. <laughs> And for all of our listeners who don't understand dramaturgy and dramaturgical, um, so we, everybody. Will, we, we will explain it when we get into that part of the conversation. But thank you for um, coming back to us after our small break time off. And welcome, bienvenidos to any newcomers to Writers Get Animated. We're excited to have you as well. So... As we start our conversation, let's talk about what Coco is and what, not necessarily what it's about, since we don't do movie reviews as like two thumbs up or five stars or any of those kinds of things. We just talk about how it worked and the storytelling mm -hmm. and what, what they did well. And if we could look a little bit into their process and find some things out. But can you talk about what Coco is, Mackenzie? So Coco is this year's Pixar movie. Um, <laughs> and it's an original concept, emphasis on original. Um, I'll get into that shortly. Um, I've been getting a look already. Original. <laughs> original original movie idea, not original cultural idea. I, I, I knew what you meant. I knew what you okay, meant. Okay, there we go. I'm following. <laughs> okay. So it's this year's Pixar movie following up from last year's question mark? Finding Dory? Um, no, there was one in between that, which was Cars 3. Oh, yeah. Cars 3 was <laughs> this year. <laughs> there were two Pixar movies this year. Uh, I forgot about that. So we're talking about this year's Pixar movie that's good. Um, I mean, I haven't seen Cars 3, but I'm, I'm assuming here. Uh, and for all the parents listening to this in the car for their kids, and you've seen Cars 3 as well, I apologize. Um, I'm sure Cars 3 is perfectly wonderful for a number of young audiences, and I shouldn't disrespect it as much. Coco, I've, however, <laughs> is great for all audiences. I've heard that Cars 3 really goes back to the original feeling of the original Cars. 
but I haven't even seen the original cars. Yeah, I. I... We don't have to talk about Cars Three. No, that's not what or we're. Or one or two, <laughs> or Mater's Halloween, or any of those Mater shorts. Let's let's just talk about Coco because Coco, I feel, uh, is better than seventeen Cars movies. Um, all Wait. stacked up together. I do have a serious question. Yes. Is Mater in Cars 3? <laughs> I feel like he is. I haven't seen any trailers with him. Yeah, I feel like they wanted to be careful of Mater. Hmm. Yeah. I, okay. So that that's an interesting moment of <laughs> Pixar being sensitive i shouldn't say pixar pixar slash disney being sensitive culturally to what mater represents um and then there was kind of this lead up to coco where they were like not disney was not super culturally sensitive and said oh we messed up let's hire all of our critics to consult on this movie and it became this very culturally sensitive masterpiece and that's what i think is interesting so they started off in the, the concept of the movie, wanting to do something with Dia de los Muertos, um, the Mexican holiday about respecting the dead, those who have gone on, your family members, and how they are still a part of your life and respecting them in that way. And they tried to, <laughs> Disney tried to trademark the phrase Dia de los Muertos, since that was the working title. And they quite rightly got taken to task for that mm -hmm. it'd be like if some somebody tried to trademark the word christmas <laughs> you know yeah which so, i'm sure people have tried right or you know it's like if disney had tried to do uh let's trademark hanukkah since that's what we're calling this film you know <laughs> depends what spelling you're using that's uh, that's true that's true <laughs> But yeah, I, I agree. Very culturally insensitive. But some of the most vocal people who came out against it, including a cartoonist, which drew this very, like, I don't know how to call it. Um, I'm forgetting my adverbs. Adjectives? Adjectives. Uh, anyway, there's a cartoonist who came out against it, specifically was hired to consult on the film. Um, and I think that Coco is better for it. Now, the flip side of this controversy of... Um, people seeing Disney as being culturally insensitive when they were being culturally insensitive are the people who think that Coco is a ripoff of the Book of Life because only one movie can do Dia de los Muertos. Right. Although, no one was upset about uh, Coco ripping off James Bond's Spectre movie. Hmm, okay. Guess we don't count that as Dia de los Muertos. Right. So there's this fine line which Coco has found its home between being culturally insensitive and finding an original story to tell in something that hasn't been told very much. Like, I think we need fewer Christmas movies in the world. I think we need more Dia de los Muertos movies in the world. Mm -hmm. And not because I like candy skulls. Like, I'm not really into Dia de los Muertos like other hipsters. That's right. <laughs> I called myself a hipster. It's on recording. <laughs> I was going to do it if you weren't, so... <laughs> well, okay. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I have I have no cultural claim on Dia de los Muertos. And to be honest, as somebody who is half Mexican and half Puerto Rican, um, being me, 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) Not some other third person. (laughs) Not some other third person in our podcast, but me um, being, you know, half Puerto Rican, half Mexican. Um, In my growing up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, (laughs) Dia de los Muertos really wasn't that big of a deal in my family. And that I think there's a lot that has to do with what my family went through as, you know, being being people who were wandering around and doing crops and, you know, farming and, and everything. And what was interesting is when my family started going to school in New Mexico, my, my father in particular told stories that it was very much about become part of the culture, assimilate, and get rid of your language. So he would get physically beaten um, by the teachers if he spoke in Spanish. So it's like mm. learn English or be beaten. So um, it knocks the culture out of you to the point where right now, um, you know, my dad can understand a lot of Spanish, but he can't speak it, you know, as much because it was literally beaten out. And so some of those cultural things, Dia de los Muertos or other things, weren't just weren't part of our family tradition because they were trying to, you know, just be, just live, just be fine. So I really didn't have any understanding of Dia de los Muertos until high school uh, ironically, in like a Spanish class in high school, <laughs> which is, it's a really interesting thing to be in a Spanish class in Albuquerque, New Mexico with other, you know, other Chicano um, students and everything who can't speak Spanish because of this generation of people who had the Spanish taken out of them. So there, there were a lot of Latinos and Latinas in my classes who um, spoke Spanish so poorly with like the worst gringo accents because yes. because it had been so far removed from their personal experiences in their families. It, it's so interesting what had been taken from them and just trying to use high school Spanish classes to try to reclaim some of that. So... Um, I don't mean to like lighten the mood too much, um, but was it as bad as like Valley Girl Spanish? Uh, yes, <clears throat> there was there was one person who I May remember. Gusta Comer. Uh, it wasn't quite that bad, but there would be like, um, soy, uh, Chris, uh, necesitamo. So like, it was really really rough to hear it was really rough to hear but um yo tambien yo tambien so (laughs) it was they would get the vowel sounds right but they would just hold on different things and say the r's weird and it was just i mean as as a white person r's are hard see i know (laughs) as as somebody uh who is married to somebody who is white um, I can I can attest to hearing many bad R's <laughs> in Spanish. See, this this is why I like Costa Rican Spanish. There's no like 
R rolling. A single R becomes like a D sound, which is confusing, but the two R's is an R sound. Yeah. Great. Easy. <laughs> There's no tongue acrobatics. I can learn that. <laughs> but I think a lot of what Coco is about is reclaiming your, f- not just a culture, but reclaiming your family history and, mm-hmm. you know, what's actually important and the family legacy that goes on. And so for me, it struck so many chords based on that. And the original idea behind Coco was that it took place in America and it was about an American, um, a Mexican-American kid who learned about his Mexican culture through this Mexican holiday. And they saw it, and the Pixar storytellers saw that as their way in since they were outsiders to the Mm -hmm. culture and could take that story and make it about, you know, them essentially looking from the outside in. And that works in some way, but it, but they were so far removed as well. I think that's an interesting perspective, not necessarily interesting story in, but I think that's an interesting um, perspective for the characters in a movie in a hypothetical version of Coco. I'm interested in that, but I think the other, the, the actual plot they're trying to tell in the original story is obviously way off base. And this is before the movie got flipped on its head because it was originally, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe uh, the little Mexican American boy, um, presumably still called Miguel at the time. Um, his mother had recently passed. Yes. And so it was about trying to use Dia de los Muertos to move on, like, and not, not forget her, but like move on with his life. And like, that's not, <laughs> it's just so <laughs> antithetical to like what Dia de los Muertos is. Yes. It's about not forgetting. It's about (laughs) constantly reminding yourself that these people existed and they are a part of you. Yeah. And the, I know that, um, I was reading somewhere, I think, um, the co-director or co-screenwriter suggested, um, Miguel needing the blessing of the family to return to the world of the living. And it kind of became this whole different story about like what it is today. And, you know being more culturally accurate. Yes. And, and speaking to people who are from that culture to understand their perspective, because it is culturally different what one culture believes about death versus another. Mm-hmm. Um, even between Puerto Ricans and Mexicans, how they view death is different, even though you can slap the Latino um, label <laughs> on it and say, you know, yeah, it's it's just one understanding. No, like the way that my mom viewed death and the way that my father viewed death from their different cultures is completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way they view family is completely different. And that's just one, the culture, but then there's the surrounding culture of my mother growing up as a Puerto Rican in New York and my dad growing up as, you know, Mexican in New Mexico and, you know, Texas, like those are, those are culturally significant differences. And in one sense in Puerto Rico, 
I'm sorry, I'm not in Puerto Rico, but in, in New York, when you're Puerto Rican, you're speaking Spanish everywhere because everyone is. That's what's mm -hmm. happening. It's it's happening around in your neighborhoods. You see it, bodegas, everything happening. It's okay. You're fine. Express yourself there. In Texas and New Mexico, you know, <laughs> it's a different culture there. And it's, it's changing. I mean, I don't want to defend it too much. I'm not going to pretend like the experience here, data growing up doesn't happen today. I'm sure that it still does. Right. But I think more people are aware that that is a problem and a bad thing. Yes. And I think it's nice to have something as big as Pixar making a film about Latinos and not just about Latinos, but starring Latinos. Yeah, this is the first ever film with like a nine-digit budget, so hundreds of millions of dollars to have an all-Latino cast. Yeah. That's crazy to me. This is I, the first one? Yes, this is the first one. And it's... And I know that Latino can be difficult in live action because you're like, well, he kind of looks it, but, you know, maybe that you get a, a brown enough-looking Italian and it's, you know, it works out. It's a lot like the controversies with different productions of then manuel miranda's play um in the heights where they're like well he looked latino so why not but he kind of looks at you know he's kind of dark he has olivey kind of skin you know i don't know this is a big thing especially in the theater scene right now there's a lot of um discussion specifically not around latino casting but around um casting for Asian characters. Especially. There's a yeah. lot of like the yellow face controversy that's going around. Right. Um, so it's interesting how that, that discussion is heightened among different, how do I want to say this? Uh, it's heightened among like different, I, I can't, think of a good way to say this chris save me <laughs> i don't know what you're gonna say so i can't save you well i think that it's interesting how that the controversy is heightened among like different cultures mm -hmm. um and so like it's it seems like it's it's more offensive in one area uh, and less offensive in other areas um what are some good examples so i think when you get into um some of the more specific uh, controversies of like the yellow face in theater and casting and all that. Uh, there's controversy between like casting someone who is of Japanese descent to play someone who is Thai. Sure. That's just something I've pulled out of thin air. I don't know if that exact specific one exists. And is it right that that exists? I mean, yes, probably. Um, that, that's a whole different thing. It's like if you cast someone who's a black British actor to play like uh, a black American it, during the time of the civil war, like culturally, do they have the same repertoire to be able to portray that same thing? Mm -hmm. And it, it gets a little bit like my son, Jack, um, he's, you know, multiracial. And so he, he's Latino. He can tick off that box on whatever census or anything. And if he were to audition for, in the Heights in, you know, 15 years, would he be able to get the role because he looks like a, a little white kid? <laughs> you know, he has 
very light skinned, but he could check off the box. Is it more about how somebody looks or is it about what somebody is or is it about what somebody can portray or is it about what somebody has experienced? It's It just starts to get muddy and interesting. Well, I th- you have an interesting Lee Unkrich quote in here about the movie, I think. Okay. Which quote is that? I put a lot of them in. <laughs> there are a lot of them. Um, I don't know if it's a quote from him necessarily, but it's like a, it's excerpted from something. It's Lee Unkrich faced a dilemma. On the one hand, he believed that artists should not be restricted to only telling stories about what they know in their own culture, but he also needed to safeguard against this ineluctable, I don't know this word actually, ineluctable biases and blind spots and ensure that his film didn't lapse into cliche or stereotype. So it's about this desire. It's being someone outside of a culture and being attracted to the idea of telling a story using that cultural framework, but not having any um, cultural mandate yourself to tell that story and not wanting to come off offensively or stereotypically or using cliche. And I think that's where dramaturgy comes into it. So I think dramaturgy is making sure that you have done enough research and asked enough questions that your story and the characters are richer and all pan out essentially like drama. That's a down and dirty definition of what you're doing when you're talking about dramaturgy. If you ask a question and answer that question, that that question's answer is reflected throughout everything else. So for example, if you take Miguel, the star of Coco, the main character, and you say, is he Mexican? Is he Mexican-American? If you answer that question to say, he's Mexican, not Mexican-American, then that changes the dramaturgy of the whole piece. Does he live in you know, a small town or a big city? When you answer that question, you set up certain dramaturgical standards that everything else goes up against. So it's it's just trying to figure out every time you solidify something and make an answer for it, then your dramaturgy for everything else has to pan out. And I think they did make some very specific choices in Coco because part of what I loved about Coco is how specific Miguel is. Because they do make the choice that he's specifically Mexican in maybe not like a small town, but like a medium town. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's clearly influenced a lot by more mainstream culture. I think partly American culture. Um, but just these things that don't exist in his small town. Because he looks different than everyone else in his town. He's got this Adidas-style red hoodie. Um, you have you've thoughts, I see. No, I was just thinking that somebody <laughs> said online, like... Why is Miguel from Coco dressed like Marco from Star vs. the Universe? You, you didn't know that's a, that's a thing? That's a Latino stereotype? Latinos will all wear red hoodies? Yeah. You didn't know that one? I didn't know that I one. Know. My, my, the hoodie I'm wearing right now is my gray Hamilton hoodie. So <laughs> I guess I, I should invest in a red hoodie. <laughs> uh, but some of the other things I like, um, Miguel has a couple gestures that he does in the movie that are just very contemporary they feel like very much like a child influenced by mainstream culture he does like this little like half like shoulder shrug like foot stamp like i don't want to 
that's not his exact line, but it's right. it's different than anyone else in his village or any of his ancestors, and all their gestures are slightly different, and I think that they all reflect the time period from which they're supposed to have come. Yes. And I do appreciate also um, talking about language in terms of making a specific choice. They had the decision to make whether they were all going to speak, all the characters were going to speak in English with the assumption that everyone was speaking Spanish, or they were going to do um, code switching between English and Spanish, which is typically the more, um, I guess, the more true experience, especially in the different households that I've been in. You know, my grandmother, my grandma Tony's house, or uh, my grandma Connie's house. It was all just you. You should know enough Spanish that to understand when she was going to flip and ask you something <laughs> in Spanish. Uh, and she would understand you if you answered her in English, but you you should be ready for that switch, like, que quieres mijo, or anything like that. Um, and the thing that I appreciated in Coco, and this is from me, so I would love to hear your experience with this, is there are no subtitles in Coco. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I agree, um, but I... I mean, I've been talking about this a lot recently. Um, I have taken a high number of Spanish classes for someone who surprisingly like does not speak Spanish exceptionally well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I've thought about it. Um, So I've taken seven years of Spanish classes in middle school, high school, and college. It's all in there, but every year my teacher is from a different country or region. Oh, that's difficult. (laughs) Yeah. So I know like generic Spanish. And so speaking of Costa Rican Spanish, I'm going down, I've been in Costa Rica a lot this year. Um, and that is not a Spanish that I've had much experience with. And it's this whole other beast, which is good for me in many ways, but also I'm now specifically trying to learn one variety of Spanish. <laughs> so I know enough that watching Coco, I didn't feel like I needed subtitles. Uh, there were some songs where I was paying more attention to the action, the lyrics. So, um... Imelda sings La Girona at one point. So you yes. even had to pause there because in Costa Rican, that'd be La Girona. <laughs> I had to think about it. La Girona. Uh, <laughs> yes. So she's she's singing about the, the weeping lady. And I'm like, cool, this is a song about a sad lady. I'm going to watch the action sequence. I don't know what happens in the song. I can assume I know what happens because it's about La Girona. <laughs> right. But... Yeah, I think that was the song where I first started realizing there weren't subtitles. It was so true to my experience that I didn't question any of the switching back and forth until that song I said, wait, this is all in Spanish. <laughs> La Llorona was completely in Spanish. And I'm like, this, this is all in Spanish. And they're not translating it. And I kind of looked down the, down the row to... <laughs> My my niece and my nephew and my mother-in-law was looking like, how are you guys doing? <laughs> <laughs> and, and they were spellbound. They were fine because the the other thing about authenticity, you know, in dramaturgy and making these choices, if you're authentic to the story moment, no one will second guess what language it is. It could be done in silence and it doesn't matter if the moment is authentic 
in the dramaturgy of the moment, in addition to the dramaturgy of time and place and period and character, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's all these other pieces to dramaturgy of if you are authentic to the story that you are telling, it doesn't matter what language it's in. You don't have to translate it. Otherwise, one, I would have been trying to read the subtitles, you know, because if words are on a screen, you're going to read them whether you can understand 60% yeah. of them or 70%. You're still going to read them. Yeah, and there, I hate subtitles. And there was so much action there that... It didn't matter. Like it was just interesting, rich action. You understood what was going on in character that you didn't have to understand the language. The performances were amazing. That song, mm-hmm. th- I love to listen to that song, the growliness of that emotion of this character having a realization and it something breaking in her will to be able to sing again and express everything. There's just a, it's a wonderful, beautiful character moment. So let's, let's actually talk a little bit about it. Cause we've hit on a lot of this, but I, if you could sum <laughs> up your personal experience with this movie in like five sentences or less, what would you say? Um, what do you, what do you mean? Can like, we- tell me about your personal reaction to Coco. Um, how it made you personally feel outside oh, of the story. Sure. Oh, sure. Um, I was I, I was struck by many different things as I watched it. Um, there was Chris Leva, the storyteller, who was watching it for how they told a story where I was impressed with. Um, there were moments of the music where I was physically and emotionally moved by the the songs and the experience. Um, where by the end of the film, I was having personal feelings well up and personal memories and was crying. Um, As I would probably venture to guess about 80, if not 100% of the people in the theater were having the same experience. Um, So it it was just, it was really strong emotionally and I really appreciated that. And so much so that I was like, I need to start listening to this music and um it's it's becoming this thing where i hear the songs and that emotion comes flooding back immediately would you watch this again in the spanish version i know you don't speak spanish necessarily but right i i don't speak spanish i understand about 75 percent of of any spanish that's spoken to me um I think, I don't know, I think I would watch it again in a Spanish version. I've been listening, the nice thing about the Coco album is it has the Spanish versions of the songs included. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I think it would be an interesting experience. I mean, I have watched Mulan in Mandarin, which was a fun experience. Why? They have that as a special feature <laughs> and you could hear Jackie Chan sing. Oh, okay, okay. That you sold it already. <laughs> like, it feels it feels somehow more authentic in Mandarin. Like all the problems that I had with Mulan are slightly fixed by watching it in Mandarin. Okay, we're gonna have to have a new discussion at some point because the fact that you had problems at all with Mulan gives me pause. Oh, that's a whole other podcast. Though. <laughs> we will talk about that. 
<laughs> coming up before the live action remake of Mulan, minus any singing. Thanks to Disney. Um, no, I would I would be interested in watching this uh, movie in Spanish as well. And I haven't seen it, but I'm assuming they did the leap ballerina thing where the lip movements are synced to the Spanish version of the audio. I'm assuming. That I'm not certain of. I don't believe they did that. Um, well, it came out in Mexico first. It did. Like, there is a Spanish version you can see in theaters. I mean, I I would assume because they're Disney that they would have gone that far. Because, it, it, you know, it's work, but it's not that much work comparatively. They did talk a lot about things that they would change for... Um, they said all the signs would be a certain language. Um, and so they would change a sign if it was going to, like, let's say they make international version not a version of it for in this language in that language they made it so that way it said one thing for it was the inter international one but they do have to make those decisions in in the print form so they did make different versions of that but i don't i don't know if they changed the whole mouth patterns to but that's what's cool about that. computer animation. You could do that, as we saw with Leap and Ballerina. Like, you can not annoy people with mismatched lip patterns. That sounds like a technical word for a podcast. Mismatched lip patterns. MLP. Because <laughs> MLP does annoy me. I hate subtitles, but I also hate MLP. Yeah, but I would take MLP over subtitles, though. Personally. I agree. I... I Anime fans come at me. I prefer dubs. Sorry. <laughs> I don't want to read my movie. I want to watch my movie. <laughs> so, uh, what what should we let's let's talk a little bit about how their story is told and mm -hmm. the things that they were able to accomplish with that because in the end and I will say spoilers, warning, spoilers from here on out more than likely. There's a very massive turn in the movie, um, a very crazy revelation that changes everything that I figured was about to happen at any point um, based mm -hmm. on certain clues. Um, but let can we talk about like the things that they had to do in terms of setting up the rules of the world? And yes. setting up how that works and how they would then use the rules of the world to create the war <laughs> rules of the film. <laughs> yes, I think that we should do that. And this is an area where I think Coco gets a little burdened down. And that's not necessarily the fault of the movie. That's the fault of white people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, okay, I want to hear more about that. <laughs> If you do a Christmas movie, you don't need to establish all the rules and traditions of Christmas leading up to the rules of the movie. You're like, cool, mm. Christmas, go. We know all the things already. If you're doing a Dia de los Muertos movie and you're marketing it in the United States, you have to set up like, you know, here's this thing. It's called an ofrenda. You have to put the pictures up with the candles and these petals and this food. And it's, it's everything. It's establishing everything about Dia de los Muertos, which you wouldn't need um, for other holidays necessarily mm -hmm. i mean technically you would need for most other holidays because most holidays exist outside the united states but <laughs> you know 
Right. It, it is, you have to explain the traditions and then explain how those traditions are going to work in the world. So you have to explain why the pictures are up. You know, they put the pictures up and then in our mil in our movie in Coco, if their picture's not up, they can't travel and make, you know, the make the journey from the land of the dead to the land of the living if their picture is not being represented on some person's ofrenda. Yes, and to the credit of the movie, one of the things I think it's successful with, with world building is all those real tradition things it does, for the most part, correlate to a movie rule thing. So you have the pictures on the ofrenda correlate to the Department of Family Reunions in the World of the Dead. Yes. Um, you have the the pedals on the ofrenda correlate to the pedal bridge that opens up once a year and you can't walk on it if your picture is not on the ofrenda. Yeah, it's really interesting that even though it takes place in Mexico, they had a problem with border crossings. <laughs> I mean, I think it was more to protect them from falling into the abyss under the bridge. They didn't really talk about that rule a lot. Like, okay, there's a border that you have to do things, but it's not really up to them to stop you. You can just run through and see for yourself you can't walk on the flowers. Yeah, border control. I was like, this is slightly problematic, but interesting. I mean, I think Disney and Pixar movies lately are fascinated with comedic moments of bureaucracy tied into the plot. There's a lot of this in recent Disney. Yeah, it, it was interesting to see. Um, I did enjoy the the facial scanners to see if their picture was somewhere on some ofrenda. Like that was that was pretty funny. Yeah, um, it's like oh okay, especially the John Ratzenberger one where he's like a person with all false teeth and his dentist has him on his ofrenda. It's like, yeah. it's like, that's funny. Um, <laughs> like I respect the person who gave me the most money in their life because of all the dental stuff. Um, but it was, it was interesting. It wasn't until weeks after seeing the film or week after seeing the film? I, like It's only been like two weeks. <laughs> I just saw it like three days ago. That's true. Uh, it, it threw me off. It's like, well, what about the customs officers? When did they get to go over the bridge? Are they not dead? Are they different they kinds of shifts. spirits? They must take spirits like, oh, now I get to go see my family and someone's going to take over for me. And how do you get a job You know, doing that? Do you have to apply? Is there like a long... Like, these are the questions that didn't bother me while I was watching it. But after I'm like, how does somebody get a job in the land of the dead? Like, are, are there jobs in the land of the dead? Do you keep your job? If Are they bureaucrats in the living? So now they're like, guess what? For all of the rest of eternity, you get to sit here at border crossings because, you know, you worked at the DMV when you were alive. Is it only Mexican people in the land of this dead or the white people somewhere else? Like... I think if you're on any ofrenda, see, you're, you're digging into this. You're zootopia-ing all the rules of the world. One might say it's a bootopia. Mm. <laughs> Ay, que lastima. Um. <laughs> Fine. Ay, de mi. Uh, so. <laughs> No, I yeah, don't. There's, there's lots of rules. We don't need to know all of them. It's kind of like these cute correlations that establish how things work. Um, 
I think the one that I'm like most lost on are it's it's having to do with Dante the dog and the Alebrijes. Alebrijes, yeah. Alebrijes, yeah. Because like there's the Alebrijes, there's a lot of them that are kind of free roaming, and then Imelda has the cool cat monster thing, which seemed like the villain of the movie in the trailers, but it's totally just a sidekick. <clears throat> um, it's totally just a sidekick. Totally just a sidekick. <laughs> um, and then there's Dante the dog who turns out much to his surprise even to be an Alebrija. And he's not very good at it. But then also like Ernesto de la Cruz's horse in the movie was named Dante. So I'm kind of like confused on how the Dante thing transfers over and what that means. I'm, I'm a little lost on a whole Alebrija rules. I don't get that. I think it's these are spiritual characters who have influence in our lives at, in hidden ways. So influences from the land of the dead who have effect on our human lives and, you know, glitches in the matrix, so to speak, you know, who are there to help us out in hidden form. And so what looked like just a stray dog to Miguel was actually a a spirit guide helping him out. And he named him Dante because he respected Ernesto de la Cruz so much that he named him after the horse. Uh, okay. Dramaturgically, I'll buy that. Yeah. I'm into that. That's how okay, I, that's fine. how I bought it. I'm like, Oh, um, Ernesto de la Cruz's horse is named Dante. So he's just like, I will name the only animal that hangs out with me, Dante. Um, and Cholos, um, which is the the breed of dog, the hairless Mexican dog. Um, yeah. Cholos are known to be possibly spiritual beings because they're weird looking. <laughs> okay. So anything weird looking, possibly spiritual being. Got it. Or anything, you know, it's a little bit ratatouille, like a, a spiritual understanding of something can come from anywhere so don't discount it it could be like oh that's really just somebody trying to guide me the right way like the squirrel who made me stop and then not get into an accident maybe that squirrel was a spiritual being trying to protect me okay i'm yeah the world building there's a lot as we've talked about yes. and like with us moments of the dante dante horse dog thing <laughs> i feel like some things have been um trimmed down a bit so we're missing parts of the puzzle. So when you start thinking about it, you're like, oh, how how does that work? What's going on there? Like the the one moment it's in the trailer too, and it totally annoys me because it never comes back. It never turns into anything. It's Miguel and Hector are walking through uh, the city of the dead. And Miguel is trying to walk like a skeleton. And he has like this limp. And Hector says like, that's not skeleton's walk. It's like, you walk like that. No, I don't. And it never comes back. Hector never has a limp again. They don't reference it. It doesn't mean anything. It's just hmm. this weird skeleton moment. Yeah. Jack was doing that um, in the mall the other day, walking to the Disney store. I was like, why are you walking like that? He's like, it's how skeletons walk. <laughs> I was like, it's like, really? Are we pretending to do Coco on the way to the Disney store? That's what we're doing? <laughs> I mean, it's fitting. It's a fitting time to do it. Oh, yeah. I was like, fair play to you, kid. You know, <laughs> well done. <laughs> but he, I was like, and, and he was doing pretty well, you know. Yeah. He wasn't wearing a hoodie, so um, mm. he didn't have that. But I, I think 
there there were probably things that got cut or you know weren't thought about because they had to do so much because as you were saying not only do they have to explain the world they have to explain the traditions and then not only do they have to do that but they have to explain what happened to this family mm-hmm. so it's not just here's how things work in Mexico. Here's how Dia de los Muertos works. Here's how Dia de los Muertos slash the land of the dead work in our movie. Also, here's what happened to Miguel's family. Like it was a lot of explaining. And the first part um, was beautiful, you know, with the the paper decorations. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's so good. It's the tradition of like Disney new art form to do the prologue to the movie. Uh, It was so good. It was a little bit longer than I think it needed to be, but it was so cool. It it was about I f- I feel like it went on for like ten minutes, but I you're could just be coming wrong. off of Olaf still. It's just everything felt like a lot at that point. That's true. I'm like, wow, this is another animated short. Like it, I felt <laughs> like, when does Coco start? <laughs> when does this movie start? Uh, but it was really well done, and I I liked that in the end Coco is about strong women (laughs) like like Miguel getting in touch with the strong women in his family like there are three women in his family that he has a connection with you know his not even his mom (laughs) not not his mom apparently but his his grandmother Coco um his other his other grandma which I can't remember her her name but the his 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 grandmother and Coco's daughter. Coco's daughter. And then uh, Mama Imelda. Uh, I think she was just Abuelita. Yeah, Abuelita. Um, Grandma Coco and Mama Imelda, who was, who's the matriarch, the great-great-grandmother who yeah. started the shoe business. Love Imelda. She's so sassy. She's wonderful. I wanted, I wanted more of her. I know. <clears throat> like in, I would not mind... I would not mind a, a Coco prequel, you know, <laughs> about Mama Imelda and her life. Because even back then, it would have been harder for a woman to start a business like that. But, yeah. But it's, it's great to know that there was this strong woman who's like, who essentially assumed that her husband left her. And to take on the life and say, you know what? I'm going to make something for myself. And that is, it's just so rich. And she never second guesses herself either. She's opened. I think it's so refreshing that she's not like this cold and calculating matriarch. She lives by her emotions. I think the moment for me that is most Imelda and we're kind of off track on rules now, but the moment for me that's most <laughs> Imelda <clears throat> is she attacks Ernesto de la Cruz. Like you murdered the love of my life. And Hector comes up, you said the love of my life. She goes, I'm angry. I don't know what I'm saying. Like, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Imelda. You don't know what you're saying. You're mad. You're allowed to be mad at both of them. That's okay. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> speaking <laughs> from my experience in my family, it is very possible to be um, feeling six emotions at a single time <laughs> and have all of them create yelling. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that's specifically a Latino thing. I just think that 
No, but I think it, it just... In my culture, we repress that. <laughs> That's we what I'm saying. We still feel that, but we repress that. It is expressed, and uh, it is expressed. Whatever thought comes out, it, it is expressed, and it must be dealt with. <laughs> um, yeah. And what I think is that they got right, what I felt that they got most right is I feel like the strongest people in my families, whether it's on my father's side, whether it's on my mother's side, the strongest people are generally the women. Mm. And those are the people who have the most influence on down the line. Like, like you could say, I could possibly write a play about my experience with my grandfather but I have written multiple plays about how my grandmother influenced <laughs> my life, like in different ways. You know, and my grandmother, she, um, my grandma Connie, she, she was the kind of person who would go to the bar where the woman um, who was sleeping with my grandfather was and beat her up to the point that the woman had to go to the hospital. Like that was that was my grandma Connie. Like <laughs> one of my favorite. And for our for our kids listening, we're not endorsing this behavior. <laughs> no, we are not. But like, <laughs> but my cousin Mark loved to ask her, like, "Hey, what did you do to that woman?" And my grandma would just say, "I better up, I better <laughs> up." Like it's it's just this strong woman. Like I'm gonna take it. I'm not going to. You know, mince words, I'm proud enough that I'm going to go and take care of business and I'm not going to mention it. And that's it. Mm -hmm. There's no sitting on it. It's so we're going to act on it and move on. Yeah. So I feel like Imelda was closest to my grandma Connie in a lot of ways. Like just the, the strength that I don't have to say anything. And I'm telling you everything that I'm feeling just with this look. So you better just do it. Like... Or be quiet, I'm talking, kind of thing. And <clears throat> to get back into the rules of the world a little bit, we are we talked about how it feels like there's a lot of rules, and that's not necessarily the burden of the movie, that's the burden of the culture outside the movie. Right. Not Mexican culture, white culture. <laughs> Correct. <clears throat> um, I also feel like where the movie struggled a bit is there's lots of characters. Yes. And it's kind of along the same lines. So like, you spend the first 20 minutes of the movie, here's... All of Miguel's giant living family. Get to know them. Great. Oh, now we're in the spirit world. Here's all of Miguel's dead family. Get to know them and how they're helping him. Great. And then you're like 45 minutes in and he leaves them. And it's like, here's all the musicians in the spirit world. Like, oh my God, stop. Just stop giving me characters. And I know dramaturgically and even story-wise why we need a large family. But I wanted less time with all the side characters. If this were just Miguel and... Abuelita and Imelda and Ernesto and Hector and Coco. You could have everyone on the fringe, but I wanted less of everyone else. Yeah. But the hard part is the story of Coco is your family is part of you. Your, mm -hmm. fam your family influences you. And the Latino experience in a lot of ways is big families and everyone having some kind of influence on everything. And yes, there may be some people who are ancillary or, you know, off on the side, but everyone has that influence. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, yes, it felt like a lot of characters, but 
it's like, yeah, of course there'd be his uncles and his other uncles and his other and his other aunts and his, <laughs> so I was like, yeah, of course. Like so for me it felt like, yeah, of course there's all these people, but then it just started where I think you were experiencing is when it starts to muddy the narrative as mm-hmm. opposed to make it a little richer. Um, then 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 it starts to get confusing. The movie and I know we we're mentioning a lot of things we're critical of with the world building right now, but we both love this movie. I think it's it's a great movie, even outside of um, I forget what I was saying. It, it's a great movie. Um, I'm completely lost now. Uh, it's it's my I will say this about Coco. It is my second favorite Pixar movie. Um, yeah. Just just what's your favorite? Just under Inside Out. Mm-hmm. I feel like there were probably a couple things where it could have risen above Inside Out. And I think some of that had to do with just um, I, I just storytelling. You know, it was so rich in so many ways that I forgave a lot of the little questions and dramaturgical que- issues that I had throughout. Um but it was just such a rich experience that I forgave it. So when I say second favorite Pixar movie, it's like <laughs> it's like bordering on beating Inside Out. The only thing that beats Inside Out is... Uh, I, I, I can't even describe why Inside Out still wins. Like, that's how close it is to taking over the number one spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, the next step for Pixar... where I would understand that they've gotten it, that they understand what they're doing, is when they have a Latino character as the main character and have have it not take place in Mexico, where it's Mm -hmm. just... um, And I wrote this down as a note to myself. So, you know, um, in Up, the, the, I think, next to the Cars movie, it's my, like, least favorite Pixar movie. Thank you. I agree. Sorry, rest of the world. <laughs> um, minus the first 20 minutes, which is like the... <laughs> yeah, the is, first 20 minutes is the best Pixar movie. Right. But it's not the whole movie. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, <laughs> I'm glad we got that out. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But um, if you take the character of Russell, who's an Asian-American kid, and there's nothing said about it. He just is an Asian-American kid. He just is. The next step for Pixar would be to have um, Carl Fredrickson become Carlos, uh, you know, Francisco. Like, <laughs> like, it's just Edward James Olmos starring in Up. And you don't have to make it about his culture. You can make it about, you could do everything the same, except, you know, have it performed as a Latino and that's how I know that Pixar will have changed. Yeah. Um, same thing with if it was a woman, you know, mm-hmm. if if the main character in Up had been a woman, keep Russell, why not? Because that's still cool. You know, keep Russell, but make it a woman. And having... Mm. I, I'm just saying there's... I think if they get away from their default being white male, just like their directors. Because when you have these storytellers and their main default is to put themselves into the movie, 
I, I, okay, here, I don't want to get too into up, but I, I agree we need to get away from the default of white male characters, but I think in up specifically, like, if you turn the main character into this saddled woman, it kind of gets into, like, these stereotypes. I guess there's, that's true. Yeah, I think specifically with up and Carl, I think there's reasons why at least he's a man. Yes. He doesn't have to be white, but he's a man. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, I'm fine with that. Okay. Similar to Inside Out, I don't think would work the same if the main character was a boy. I shouldn't say main character. If the main human character was a boy. You don't think it would work? I think it would work, but it would be different. I think it'd be great if it was an African-American girl, like in Inside Out. I mean, that gets into a lot of other, like, let's move to the Bay Area. <laughs> Dramaturgical problems. Well, it's dramaturgical. It, it makes it a little bit richer, I think, in some ways. And in other, yeah, you know. It would be. But it's a, it doesn't work exactly the same. And that's okay. It doesn't have to work exactly the same um, for it to work. Because, it still work. and this is, this comes back to dramaturgy. If you make a switch like that, just a willy-nilly switch, whether it's gender, background, race, heritage, any of those things, your movie should have to change significantly. Mm-hmm. Like that's how you know that your dramaturgy is specific and sound enough. When you make a quick change, like what if the character, what if Miguel was a girl in Coco? The whole movie would have to change. Yeah. Because it's so specifically about Miguel as a male member of his family. I think it'd be more interesting if Miguel were a woman, actually. I think so too, personally. Like when I, when I was reading any of this, I was like, well, why can't it just be, why can't it be a female character? And I think that's the next step for Pixar is when it stops needing to be a male voice or a white voice, you know, if, if they start diversifying. Because so far we have Brave Inside Out and now Coco. Like that's three movies out of everything that, don't have a white male character lead. Right. You don't know about cars. We don't know that. Uh, Owen Wilson is white and male. Okay, fine. Wow. 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 Speaking of wows, um, I do want to talk about <laughs> um, the storytelling in terms of perception shift. Yes, please. Um, do you know a lot about perception shift, Mackenzie? I do, but you should explain it for our audience. Okay, so the the best way to describe the perception shift is the idea that um, a film happens or a story happens, whether it's a play, in the mind of the audience. And the perception shift is where you understand that the creators have been telling a different story than the one you realized. So in in one sense... It's not always a transformation, but it's the realization of what's really happening. So it's not always a surprise ending, but it's the revelation of the story that you are realizing what it's all about in the end. Mm -hmm. So the biggest perception shift would be something like the end of the sixth sense, where you realize that it was a different story all along. Um, Coco, with its understanding, it's about reclaiming and saving his family and saving the memory of somebody 
um, or family versus fame. It's, you know, a lot of different things in there. And that, that perception shift, um, the nice thing about the transformation is good dramaturgy will give you clues so that way you see that that transformation was inevitable from the very beginning. And it also will give you, I think, red herrings. Because I think when you start watching Coco, there's a lot of the what seem like little dramaturgical clues that are just the the obvious connection they want you to make before Miguel makes them. Yes. Which aren't true connections. Correct. But um, so there's the what they call pointers in the perception shift conversation pointers, which point to this is the truth. This is the truth, but you're ignoring it because of other reasons. You're ignoring it because the character's ignoring it, or you're ignoring it because it's just not obvious to you. Um, you, the, the idea that they give you just enough to confuse you or, or to trick you. And, you know, the, she, mother and mama Imelda, thought her husband just left and went off to become somebody famous because he was more interested in fame. So her assumptions about her husband become your assumptions about your husband. And then it, it becomes, oh, it must be Ernesto de la Cruz. It, mm-hmm. it must be. Look at the guitar, you know. But other things, and I've read some articles where like, look at these they call them Easter eggs. Hey, look at this Easter egg. Look at Hector's teeth, his gold tooth, and then look at Miguel's guitar. It's an, an it's an Easter egg. It's like no, it's a pointer. It's telling you mm. whose guitar <laughs> it really is. It's not it's not an Easter egg. But they don't have other language to say. Oh, it's a pointer towards. Yeah, everything's an Easter egg in our modern culture. And it's like no, it's not an Easter egg. It's dramaturgy. It's dramaturgy. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that could be the summary for a book. <laughs> a pop culture dramaturgy, like pop culture psychology, pop culture dramaturgy. Uh, that could be our t-shirt. It's not an Easter egg. It's dramaturgy. It's dramaturgy. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. So, and I think the the biggest pointer towards the transformation of things is um, a piece's title. Like a title should be the thing that reveals what the movie is really about. So when we look at, yes, they changed the film's title from Dia de los Muertos, so they wouldn't have to trademark it, to call it Coco. That Coco is the key. Coco is the transformation. Um, you had a question about this. Yeah, I <clears throat> I agree it's a pointer and it kind of guides your personal emotional journey with the movie and understanding it in retrospect. Do you think the connection was strong enough to justify the movie being called Coco? Cause like at the very beginning, you're like, this is my great grandma Coco. Nothing, 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 nothing. One hour in, like, I'm just trying to see Coco again. Like, okay. Right. It was <sighs> for Hector. His connection, his whole reason for going back is about his daughter, Coco. Mm -hmm. So that's what it is about for him. And that would be great if he were the main character, but he's not the main character. Miguel is. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but you can't call the movie Hector. You know, you can't call it um, my great great grandfather. You know, you can't. But I've got it. A Rivera runs through it. Oh my goodness. I'm on a roll today. That's like, that's basically a, a Michael Giacchino <laughs> track title. It is, yes. Please, Michael Giacchino, steal that. Have, more cocoa. On, yeah, I was reading the titles because I said, okay, because he's known for putting puns in his track titles. So he has, Miguel has an axe to find, is mm. one of the titles, and Cave Dwelling on the Past. And I'm like... Like, oh, Michael Chachi, <laughs> come on. <laughs> I, I mean, I, but yeah, I, I agree. The focus of the title should be something about the family. Um, and Coco is a pointer, and I see why they chose Coco as the name of the movie, but it's very, I, I feel like it's almost loose. I don't have a better title in mind, but. Yeah. Uh, and you I spent half the movie wondering why it's called Coco. And then you realize she's the last one who has, she has all the answers. She's the last one who remembers Hector. You know, I, I feel like there's maybe something in the song Remember Me. Remember me, though I have to say goodbye. I, I don't know having a Pixar movie called Remember Me. Or Requerdeme? Or Requerda, you know. I don't know if that would have been as effective, but I feel like that's what it is. The song Remember Me is the big guiding perception shift thing that goes with the movie. Because uh, we get three different readings of the same song lyrics throughout the movie, which is what I think is brilliant and kind of guides the emotional journey. Yes. Because it begins with the Ernesto de la Cruz recording of her, him singing Remember Me. Um, and it's like saying to like a lover as he's leaving, like, I have to go in the morning, but do remember me. I'll always be with you. It's like this fame schmaltzy thing. And it's kind of, it's like Miguel wants that at first. Yes. And then you find out it's a lullaby that Hector wrote for baby Coco. And he's singing it as a lullaby to his daughter that they sing every night at the same time. Mm -hmm. And like, oh, it's the same thing, but not quite as schmaltzy and gross. Right, And then ultimately becomes Miguel singing it as a plea, remember me, please remember me. Um, so for me, like that, that's the core of the movie. I don't know if there's a good title in that. Um, yeah. I feel like... Yeah, there's there's something in that sentiment, but I don't know where the title is. But it's in that, like, even though I'm far away, I'll hold you in my heart. Even if that's it, you know, hold you in my heart, like something like that, or in my heart, and then like corazón, you know, I feel like something like that speaks more to it. Like the answer is there. It's just it's it's locked in side of Coco. Like, I feel like there's something additional there that needed to be said mm -hmm. um, for that to be like the perfect perfect pointer towards what that transformation is. But remember me, uh, that that scene where he's singing to his dying grandmother. I mean, Ugh. it's 
I'm I'm tearing up a little bit right now. It's just so pure in terms of what he's trying to do and the family's reaction, and you see that understanding where she starts to hear it, and you see what used to be almost somebody who'd given up, mm-hmm. you know, like coming back. Um, and so in a in in one way when her picture goes on to the ofrenda the next year, one year later, um, which you need to be able to see that, okay, she's gone, and there's a new child mm-hmm. born. Um, which all, One in, one out. Which, I mean, there's there's that culturally, too. Like, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> there's that understanding of if somebody gets born, who's going to die? Like, like there's, there's that understanding of it, too. So it, it does make sense. But um, I don't. I don't know. There's just something where it's it's this joyful thing of like, you kind of feel like oh, like in the whole theater, everyone's like oh, but knowing that she was back with her parents and that Hector finally gets to see her again, it's just it's heartwarming. But I also so why I tear up is I feel specifically that moment where Coco has this realization in her Alzheimer's of like what's going on and she recognizes things. Yeah. I think that transcends anything else culturally in the movie. I had a very, like that hit me particularly hard because I had a very similar moment with one of my grandmothers as she was on her deathbed. Mm. And like she had like had memory issues for a long time and never knew who I was. And like the last time I saw her, I was like, oh, Kenzie, how are you? I'm like, what? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that that's that's a very s- sweet moment, and it it doesn't uh, I don't it doesn't take you out of the movie. It does the opposite? It drags you into the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really I think uh, because it was so authentic. It doesn't matter which culture you are. That understanding of reaching out to somebody who you thought was gone is is just really really pure and for me um, there's this cathartic moment in the final song um, where it's just this and this is Proud Corazon um, which is a different title in Spanish but um, it, he, where Miguel is actually able to express himself in the way that he's always wanted to he's He's able to sing and his family is celebrating the talent. They're celebrating not just Miguel's talent, but the understanding of Hector in the past. So they finally get that going. And then there's this moment in where it starts off slower and it builds up. And there's just this moment where some trumpets come in. And it's just like this... And it, it does this change and like that moment something happens in my heart and it just that's where all the catharsis is and that those trumpets and it gets a little faster and it just um even listening to it on the way um to record today it it just cracked me open all over again and i think it's just uh there's just something about that joy it's just pure joy even though you're celebrating people who have gone there's just pure joy in the remembrance of them. Um, mm-hmm. And for me personally, this year's been, for some reason, there have been a lot of things that um, 
I've wanted to tell my mother mm. and share with her. Like, I know my mom would have loved Coco. Mm -hmm. And I know that she probably would have added the music onto, um, you know, got the CD so she could use it to clean because it's beautiful cleaning music for any, <laughs> any Latinos out there who need music to um, clean your house by. <laughs> Um, it's going to go on my cleaning house playlist. White <laughs> gets the writers get animated stamp of approval. Um, so if you need to clean your house, it's going to be great. But it's just those moments of, oh, my mom would have loved this. And um, there was almost a point where I almost tried to text my mom. And she's been oh. there for like three years. And I'm like, ah, it, it was just like this strange thing. Like, I know she would have loved it. And there's that... Um, that break of remembering the people in your life who had gone, mm -hmm. but the joy of the connection. And yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a very joyful movie. And I think that's what doesn't break my heart. It doesn't break your heart. It breaks it open, which is, yeah. which is a, it, it opens your heart instead of breaks mm -hmm. it. And I think that's what I feel in those little trumpets at the end it's just like this something where i don't know it's the another transformation it's the as we were talking about the three remember me's it's moving into just this is what it's about it's about that family uh family legacy mm -hmm. and and personal life and personal connection as opposed to the love of the world because in the end ernesto de la cruz loses loses that i don't know how i don't know how they found out from the land of the dead what he had done they no they had um they was a it was a throwaway like plot thing at the end at coco pulls out his picture it's like and i have all these notebooks with your grandfather's songs oh i know he i know the songs but like why would that be enough like to discredit him like oh somebody else wrote the songs it's it's the end of the movie. Just let it go. I know. I know. I know. I'm just going to sit here and cry then. Okay. <laughs> so what else about this movie did you... I, we've, we've talked a lot about some things we've loved. I think we've talked more about things we had problems with. But uh, what else did we love about this movie? Were the specific moments that you thought kind of brought out the same joy, this opening of your heart? I think La Llorona is amazing i think um the scene where miguel is talking to frida kahlo was yeah. was great <laughs> anything frida kahlo i like <laughs> i guess we're gonna pick one mexican celebrity one real mexican celebrity but the movie it'll be frida kahlo sure why not <laughs> i mean i get why we didn't use diego rivera for many reasons but also he shares the same last name as miguel which complicates dramaturgically what's going on <laughs> So, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I think there's, <laughs> I, I liked any time she was there because then she becomes a spiritual guide in her own sense. Um, and again, another strong female voice in the land of the mm -hmm. dead. Um, and everything she did was so funny. Oh, I and know. And so, so Frida. Uh, 
And like I've, they say at the beginning when they're rehearsing, like, and everything's on fire. Like, okay, that's going to be ridiculous. Then you see it at the end of the movie. Everything's on fire. Like, that looks pretty good. It's like, wow, that's evocative of something. <laughs> 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 wow, that's telling a real story about something going on. <laughs> yeah, the cactus is also me. Okay, I'm on board. <laughs> just, which is also me. Like, that, that was just <laughs> hilarious. Um, I did appreciate... Um, the any of the singing, the music was was wonderful. Um, all of the music. Uh, Jack, having seen it once, was singing "Poco Loco" a lot. Um, so he caught caught onto the music. Um, the, it was just, and and let's just say the art direction was just gorgeous. Like mm-hmm. the the look of it, the design of the characters, um, the idea of the interesting class system in the land of the dead between the remembered and the forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, if Poor you, Edward James almost. Oh, Chicharron. I don't know why his name's Chicharron. I mean, I know what Chicharron is, but okay. It's just, it's just a sweet little name for somebody. Yeah. So you could call him Cheech. You know? <laughs> I don't know. But that that is a heartbreaking moment. That's But it also, it provides two things. It's, it's heartbreaking, but it also shows you, oh, guess what? This is going to happen to a character you like. Yeah, here, like, 30 minutes in, like, by the way, we need stakes for this story. Here are stakes. Would you like them? Because here's the thing. How do you create danger for somebody who's already dead? They can die again. They call it the second death. Oh. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't it, it worked because it's connected to being remembered. And that's the theme all the way through. As long as somebody remembers you and remembers what you are about and remembers the truth about you, then you can, you're still alive. And when I'm not gonna lie, I do want like a Mufasa cover of this song. Remember me, (laughs) though I have to say goodbye. (laughs) Oh goodness. (laughs) You are more than what you have become. I'd watch this crossover. <laughs> Maybe he's the cat. It is possible. It's possible. <laughs> so, Mackenzie, <sighs> did you have a favorite thing in Coco? I'm going to have to agree. I think the music was my favorite thing. And for, I did, I'm thinking about this right now, for the first Pixar movie musical? Yes. Yeah. 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 It's pretty solid. Um, I think Remember Me is my favorite song. Um, all varieties of it. Um, I won't listen to the last sobby cry one in my car, oh, but I gosh. like it. I made that mistake on the way over. I was <laughs> I was weeping, and then Proud Corazon came on, and I was weeping even more. Like, <laughs> I, think, I think, I think, I don't know if it's my favorite song. I think my favorite song is Poco Loco, but I think, because Poco Loco sounds like a my wife is asked, she's like, is this a song? I'm like, it feels like a, <laughs> it should be a song. It feels like a folk song. It feels like a song that I've heard. 
Like all of these songs felt like something I probably heard on the drive home from school with my grandfather when he was playing things on the radio. Like I know I've heard these songs and it, mm-hmm. it was just rich. But I like listening to the these songs in English and Spanish too. I like the Spanish language version. Yeah. Yeah. And they work so well. I mean, I forget who wrote the the song lyrics, but I think that they it doesn't feel like they changed too much from what I've listened to so far. Going no. from Spanish to English. No, they didn't. And I think that may be a process of writing it at the same time, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh I I I look forward to Coco winning many many awards and even if this were a tough competition year for the oscar it would still deserve it but there's like not much else out there this year yes so i think it's nice because it will quite rightly win everything it deserves to win (laughs) that there won't be any question of no 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 give it all its awards (laughs) it's i mean we've we've done a podcast on the boss baby which isn't terrible but like that's Coco's biggest competition so far. I'm sorry, I did not hear enough air quotes in biggest competition. <laughs> biggest competition. Oh, much better. Again, not terrible. You should still see Boss Baby. It's on Netflix right now. Um, does it deserve awards nominations? Eh, maybe it's the token fifth one. But the fact that it's going to be like the the second place, the perennial second place in every contest this year. <laughs> What it, what it should do, here's what they, this is what I want the Oscars nominations to be. Like, okay, so the nominations for best screenplay, blah, 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 blah. And the winner of the best animated film is Coco. Like, no, this is the nominations. No, no, no. The winner. We're, the we're, winner. We're just doing it. We don't, we don't. I wonder if they'll drop it back down to like three nominations this year for animation. Because they've been doing five. There were a lot of animated movies this year. You could have five nomination slots, but I don't know if they'll nominate five yeah and the nominations for include the winner coco and all the other films (laughs) honorable mentions (laughs) that's that's what i see i look forward to um uh not just it winning but i look forward to the ripple effect that i hope that coco has for disney pixar DreamWorks, anybody else who's looking to make films that, look, if you do it right, if you have your dramaturgy right, not just putting, you know, Latino characters in willy-nilly, not just putting Lin-Manuel Miranda in there, you know, (laughs) not doing stuff. Because they they use Lin-Manuel Miranda for Moana, you know. they. (laughs) You're right. This is a Disney movie, and Disney loves Lin-Manuel Miranda, and he's not part of Coco. I'm okay he's, with that. He's, I love Lin-Manuel. Because he's Puerto Rican. I know. But he, I guess he's busy. I don't know. He, I don't know. He, I don't this know. This feels like something Disney would have like crammed Lin-Manuel Miranda into. Like, you can fit. <laughs> so I, I think I'm looking forward to telling authentic Latino stories or other people of color and seeing that, look, if you treat a culture with respect... And maybe even get some of the people from that culture to have influence on your storytelling. You, it, people will see it. Not just Latinos, but everybody will see it, and everybody. And you won't even have to coax them with a carrot nose at the end of a stick. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. You won't have to leading. You won't, you won't have to give them um, uh, uh, a snowman before it <laughs> to get them into the theater. And I do, I do think that we're talking about Coco winning awards. I think this will be one of the rare years where the animated movie gets at least two Oscars. I could see this getting at least two nominations for best song and probably winning one of them. Yeah, I I can see Remember Me winning for best song. I think it should. And I think it might get nominated for screenwriting as well. I think it would get... I wouldn't be surprised. I think it would get nominated. It won't win. Yeah, it won't win, but it might get a nomination. So, and it should sweep a lot of Annie's too. What else are the Annie's going to honor? I mean, there's some independent movies, and they're great, too. And I look forward to finding out what independent movies I should see that I've never heard of. <laughs> so, wonderful. Uh, well, should we talk, now that we've talked a lot about Coco and our experience with Coco's, and we've each shed a couple of tears as we've remembered Coco, should we talk about next time? Let's. So, for your homework... The first part is already easy. You've already seen it. If you've seen Coco, you've already done your homework because we're going to talk about Olaf's Frozen Adventure. Ha ha! You thought we forgot it, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> the second part is go ahead and watch Beauty and the Beast, The Enchanted Christmas. So we'll be talking about those on our holiday episode in two weeks. I don't know why I said it like that. I'm sorry. It it happens. It just comes out sometimes. Yes. (laughs) Uh, As always, thank you to our engineer, Nigel Catino. Gracias, Nigel. Oh, we're doing him gracias now? No, I was adding that. Okay. Um, Y muchas gracias, uh, (laughs) Jacob Reed, uh, por la música de theme. I think it's a different word, but I mean. Okay. Pola Musica. Um, and you can find us on Twitter at WG Animated. I guess I'm doing both parts today. Uh, and you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash WG Animated. Or you can find all of our show notes on Tumblr, writersgetanimated.tumblr.com. So, until we're in your ears again. Recuerdanos. Nos, yeah, recuerdanos. Recuerdanos. <laughs> Buenas noches todos, todos. Oh. Buenas noches todos. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>